World Wild Podcast. I'm your host, Miles Irving, and the World Wild Podcast is sponsored by Forager Limited and the Wildbox. Um, and these are both our existing commercial arms, and both businesses exist to really further the aims of the World Wild Project in general. Um, and that aim, quite simply, is to restore vital connection between people and landscapes. But it's quite a broad um, concept of landscapes that we have. I'm not just thinking of soil and geology there. Um, as our guest this week, Jules Pretty, points out, the, the landscape is, is, is an all-encompassing concept. And um, when I say landscape, I'm thinking of um, the biology which it supports and the social life which landscapes supports and not least in amongst that uh, the bodies of human beings so with that in mind um, it's quite a broad range of topics you may have noticed with the um, guests that we're having on the worldwide podcast and that's that's a deliberate thing I'm wanting to look at how um, the wildness of our physiology for example enables us to connect with other people and there's ways to sort of lean back on that more when we understand how our bodies work and how people um, are hardwired to respond to one another when when they feel safe and uh, they begin to feel connected and that sense of safety is also something which I'm increasingly feeling and experiencing myself is a result of being outdoors and, and in wild spaces. I mean, I first had this sense many years ago. I went to uh, a, a piece of woodland, which I was quite familiar with, and I just noticed a sense that I was experiencing that somehow it felt like I was being nurtured. It felt like I was being fed. Um, and that was just an attempt for, for me to, to, to describe what I was experiencing. I, I couldn't really... Um, explain it or substantiate it but I, I just felt like it was it was like almost a baby at the breast or something like that I was I was being fed something by the space around me but perhaps by the trees or something like that and um, this thought about feeling safe and then being able to open up and and form intimate bonds with other people which is something that the uh, polyvagal theory authored by Stephen Porges, who, who I do hope to have as a guest on, on the podcast at some point. That's something that Stephen has really emphasized, and he's, he's uh, got a subtitle to one of his books by that name, Polyvagal Theory, um, The Transforming Power of Feeling Safe. And I do increasingly have that sense when I'm out in wild spaces that there's, there is a bonding that's going on, and I, I'm still really no further forward in terms of being able to explain it. Um, I don't think I'm thinking of things like plant spirits or even spirit from the land. Um, but I know that's a way that other people have th thought about it and described it and traditional cultures do. Um, and I'm not sure I even need to explain it. It's just, um, it's just that I do feel that uh, what I'm experiencing is basic. I think it must be what squirrels feel and birds feel and, and so on, that there's a sense of belonging when we're in wild places and and um i think also more so in in familiar wild places which are places that we, we go often and, and most likely to be places 
quite near to where we live. So um, just going back to, to, to how I got started on this train of thought, the wild box, which I've said a couple of um, times in the last few weeks, is a way for people to become familiar with wild plants through the year. And, and um, we send a few different plants every week that people can experiment with. But, but really the goal of that and the goal of our other operation where we sell uh, edible wild plants, mushrooms and, and stalgi and so on to restaurants, is to reforge those links between people and land by, by getting these food plants back into the culture. And for some people it's controversial because there we are gathering some quantity, um, maybe a few kilos or something, um, from a place and it's it's more than what we need personally and we are doing it in order to in order to sell it. Um, but for me it's it's not controversial um, because what we're seeing happen over time is that these plants are now beginning to have a place in the in the um, in the culture at least in in um, higher end restaurants and at the same time people who are interested in getting back to the land or organic food or local food or becoming super conscious of um, the nutritional content of food those kind of people are also tuning into the um, availability of wild foods and that's a way of significantly increasing the level of nutri nutrients you um, intake. So from both angles, from a sort of high gastronomy end and a um, sort of grassroots element of, of people changing their diet, there's, there's this revived interest in wild food and specific plants which have been made commercially available and therefore through that instrument, um, especially through chefs, those plants have become better known and um, they're sort of uplifted. It's uplifted their cultural status and the number of people that know about them. So, I mean, I think it's a it, it's a it's a really beneficial thing, and we've always been um, looking at that long term benefit. Um, perhaps with a view that in the future there'll be much less space for um, people to commercially harvest as we're doing now. I think that's quite interesting because there come a point where so many people are aware of what's there that. Um, it'll sort of shift things on to the next stage in, in this sort of cultural evolution and back to land and, and connectedness with land. And what I mean by that is I think there's, there's going to reach a stage where these resources will be recognised as commons, you know, common resources. Um, and as a consequence, we'll have to work out something by way of sharing the resources. And I think that's tremendously exciting. One, one, one aspect is there are some resources which which are super abundant and just now the birch is producing sap the sap is rising and causing the leaves and the flower buds to swell uh, and so that's a very exciting time of year we've been out tapping birches and um, it's a magic moment when you stand by a birch tree and and take a drink of the first um, of the sap to come out I, um, managed to get down there with my kids to to uh, to do that um, on Saturday, I think it was, and and we and we like to just pour some into our sort of cupped hands and drink out of our hands. It's it's uh, just a way of celebrating that we're, we're sort of drinking in and participating in the land reawakening. And you know, birch trees are really really abundant species. It's something that most people could do most people have a birch near them 
um, and then tap into that. And um, as Monica Wild mentioned in in um, previous podcast, it's a it's also a source of sugar if you can go to the trouble of boiling it down. And this this for our ancestors would have been a an opportunity to tap into some sweetness in the spring um, as a real special treat. But other resources, it seems to me, could be far more abundantly available um, if we were thinking about co- uh, management of common resources. Uh, for me, any piece of grass that's ever sprayed with pesticides is it's, it's kind of madness. Because you have things like dandelion and plantain, even daisy, yarrow, lots of these grassland species, which will actually tolerate the grass being cut very short and yet still manage to hold on and produce a lot of leaf growth there. Um, and just that fact that they will um, not only survive but thrive in being cut back tells you that they're not going to suffer um, any detriment from being harvested. And in fact, what happens is when you cut them back, uh, they regrow several times in the season um, and make that piece of grassland actually a very productive piece of land. Um, I would love to do some figures if, if we could over um, a wider area of landscape and just work out the, the uh, biomass that we could take from a field um, and then add up all the different fields and see in, in a particular area um, just how much salad, herbs and greens we got from just bits of grass. Um, and obviously those bits of land are supporting various different kinds of biodiversity unlike um, an area that's being industrially farmed where in, in many cases there's just a single harvest at the end of all these inputs you just cut something and that's the end of it. Um, so very productive um, areas such as grassland for example could could be more productive simply simply by people a not spraying and b actually harvesting the stuff so that it regrows and increases how much biomass is produced on that piece of land. And then there's other areas which are less uh, common habitats, some of the coastal habitats, many of which have been um, swept aside in terms of their productivity of plants. A lot of the sea defences have destroyed sea kale colonies um, in many places. A lot of land has been drained to allow um, an increase of the the amount of agricultural land. Um, So areas like the fens and the salt marshes around East Anglia. I do wonder whether in the future um, an increased demand and interest not just for wild spaces but for wild foods um, of all kinds. I mean for example those fens used to support massive populations of wildfowl and eels and reeds and all sorts of other plants that we use for craft Um, and the uh, salt marshes obviously produce a a lot of biomass of edible wild plants and again wildfowl. um, and, and reeds, the similar kind of things really. Um, but I do wonder whether the economic value from all of these things being used, even if that economic value was conceived in a, in a more um, ancient way, you could say, by just units of food rather than units of exchange with, with the, with the uh, food plants being sold. But once there's um, a restoration of a really strong culture of wild food and and the use of wild resources generally. I do wonder whether if somebody doing the maths wouldn't realise that that a salt marsh was actually a um, a more productive landscape on balance. And so I can see there being um, a change in um, land use as a result of an increased demand for for wild plants. So uh, whilst in the short term we might find that 
there's not so much to go around. This, this uh, in the future that we are sort of dreaming of and envisaging would mean more wild land because there's more benefits than than just the the sort of leisure benefits, which are, I mean they're obviously great. It's, it's great for people to be appreciating um, a walk in the countryside. But if we saw that space as being something that produced food as well, um, there would be more reason to move agricultural land back into um, wildland, which is more biodiverse. And on the other hand, um, I can see, I mean, it, from several directions now, there's, there's uh, it looks like the, uh, the end is nigh for the world of pesticides and agrochemicals. Um, fertilizers, as we know, destroy the biodiversity of the soil and they cause runoff into rivers, which taxpayers pay vast amounts of money to clean up. This is the sort of thing that um, I guess this week Jules Pretty has written extensively about, particularly in a, um, a great book of his that he wrote back in the 90s called The Living Landscape. So yeah, pesticides as, as, and fertilizers um, basically causing pollution, pesticides causing massive reductions in biodiversity in terms of insect populations, um, just to mention one, but also um, the toxicity of pesticides just in the air or residues in food being much more of a danger to human health than we'd previously thought. For example, we're, we're now becoming aware of the cocktail of effect of several different um, pesticides going on one crop, that the interaction of those tiny trace amounts working together are, are probably far more disruptive than what we considered um, higher doses of individual pesticides to be. Um, so for all of those reasons, it looks like there's there's a um, a very likely future scenario of pesticides being banned completely, and of course the other benefit there is that plant populations where where um, herbicides are currently knocking out large amounts of weeds because the fields are being farmed purely for the single crop. Um, well, those uh, fields could be producing large amounts of edible wild plants. And I'm, I have a particular insight into that because where I live, we're surrounded by organic fields. And just now we've got a wheat field, which is producing massive amounts of chickweed, sheep sorrel, speedwell, charlock, um, wild poppy, dock. Um, those are just the, the ones that immediately spring to mind. It's a very biodiverse field. And because it's been farmed organically for a number of years, the... Um, the seeds in the in the soil are, are probably much more than in a conventionally farmed field, as well. Um, and we do harvest some of those plants and and give the the uh, the guy that farms it some some money for each each one that we harvest. Um, but I can see that being much more of a thing in the future, where there's more of an interest um, in these wild plants, where, where people collectively have an arrangement with local farmers to to uh, to um, to sort of weed those crops whilst using the weeds. I mean, we also get wild oats from the fields around here, which is which is really terrific. We make a wild oat milk. Um, so that is another area where um, a greatly increased amount of wild food could be available uh, with a change in farming methods. If every field was organic, there's a vast amount of um, biomass, just a, a huge biomass of edible wild plants that would be produced. Yeah, I mean, those are a few thoughts about how this landscape uh, connection could actually change land use quite tangibly as people become increasingly involved in um, harvesting the edible wild plants. So now I just want to lead up to actually introducing this week's guest 
Jules Pretty um, with a bit of background above and beyond what I'll say just before he comes on. So Jules has written a number of books, as I've mentioned. There's um, there's this one, The Living Land, which is uh, a real manifesto for sustainable agriculture and looking at how if we see things in terms of multiple benefits, which is which is actually a kind of ecosystem way of looking at things, you know, an ecosystem provides multiple benefits to multiple species, in fact, as, as well as, um, you know, multiple benefits for, for individual species. Um, whereas conventional agriculture is just looking at one, one benefit, a singular output, so it's a kind of mechanistic view. Jules makes a, a, a fantastic case for how social benefits um, and uh, local economic benefits and um, benefits of biodiversity, benefits of human health, that um, he, he, he does his best to assemble a kind of a full spectrum picture of benefits, basically, from a, from a more um, biodiverse agriculture, a more labour-intensive agriculture, to basically um, provide a, a route for more people to be involved and, and the production of food to just, well, all round, as, as, uh, as I'm trying to say here, uh, more beneficial. Um, so that's a tremendous piece of work, but out of that has come um, a lot of subsequent research, and Jules touches on that in the podcast where he talks about just how many people in how many different places are working on developing techniques of sustainable agriculture. Um, I mean, it's a, it's, it's a challenge for me. I, I, I will say that um, the perspective around sustainable agriculture is... is um, Perhaps working at things from from the opposite end to where we're looking at, uh, we're dreaming and imagining a scenario where wildness becomes the, the the sort of totality of our resource base once again, as it was for hunter gatherers. It's a it's a bold thing to dream about, um, and um, on the other hand, there's a lot of people dreaming about a much more sustainable agriculture, where agriculture itself is becoming more biodiverse. So perhaps in the end, you'll see that there's a there's a slight difference of opinion in the podcast um, about whether agriculture is per se um, a negative thing or if it's just a question of definition. Um, and you know, I like to think that this podcast is is a is a document in a way of my own thought process and obviously a way to gather others into mine and and the thought processes of the guests. Um, so perhaps, you know, five years time, I'm going to see this quite differently. Um, but for now, I'm seeing sustainable agriculture as a way that's edging back towards the wild. Um, we'll see. But anyway, so there's another another book. Um, I mean, Jules has authored 18 books, but I'm only going to mention the one I have and one other one called um, The Edge of Extinction, where he went and traveled um, and visited um, people on landscapes that still have some kind of land-based culture which which he sees as being under threat um, and I think it's it's really important to see that where there's an initiative towards reconnecting people with land part of that initiative I think globally has to be that we recognize that cultural extinction is just as much of an issue as biological extinction and I say that because where people have managed to live uh, with intimate bonds between themselves and landscape with with reciprocity so that basically there's a functional joining between um, p 
people who inhabit a place and that place, you know, um, it's something that benefits both the people and the landscape and the biodiversity there. Well, that thing in itself being under threat is, is incredibly serious because um, we need to know how to live on land and and uh, it promote the well-being of both us and other species. So, you know, I think the work that, that Jules is doing on, on all the different areas is shedding some really important light on what we stand to lose and also how we can uh, initiate new ways to um, connect people and land. So without further ado, I'll uh, move on to introducing Jules. I'm now going to welcome this week's guest to the World Wild Podcast. It's Jules Pretty, who is Professor of Environment and Society at the University of Essex. And also a prolific author. Um, I'm not going to attempt to read out the, the long list of books that he's published, but suffice it to say, um, they're very inspirational and they cover a variety of topics, including sustainable agriculture, uh, traditional ecological knowledge of indigenous societies, and more recently, health benefits to people of being in green spaces. I mean, that's that's a summary of also his academic work, which covers a lot of those areas. And, and, and I think Jules is particularly involved in researching and providing a very strong case for how good for us it is to be in, in green spaces. So that's a brief summary. If you would like to know more about what Jules has written, then just go on his web page as an exhaustive list there. So welcome to the World Wild Podcast, Jules. Uh, thank you, Mars. Pleasure to be with you. I hope you're um, happy with that summary there. I mean, I just think um, a, a briefer summary would be that you, you basically write and research the relationship of people between people and land. That's right. Uh, yes. Yeah. I mean, I use the I use the term land in the in the very broadest sense. Uh, you know, the planet is 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 our land beneath our feet, um, whether wet or dry. And yeah. I suppose the kind of the central concept in in those things that you've mentioned, the sustainability of agriculture and food, the health benefits from natural places, the knowledges that we have about uh, land, biodiversity, natural resources, however we put it. I think at the core of all of that is this sense of of defining what we might constitute or think constitutes a good life how to live well mm. what is it what does that actually mean in terms of our choices um our impacts upon other people our impacts upon natural resources and the planet as a whole um our efforts of course always to live long and live well if we can um and at the core of that all of those things is really you know the, the the nature of the human condition and we do have choices which is kind of lucky really um uh, but the choices that we at the aggregate level certainly across the planet at the moment are putting uh many things um under serious stress and threat um and i think a you know a core kind of normative outcome of a lot of our work would be that we have to we have to make some pretty serious changes and uh pretty soon as well to prevent long-term negative impacts. Yeah, I mean, the more I think about this stuff, the more I, I've, I've started to think in terms of there being, um, you know, a severance of a bond that used to exist between people and landscapes. Um, you know, a, a bond that was almost like an umbilical cord, you know, that, that we um, were joined to the biosphere in really practical ways, but also kind of emotional ways ways that um, involve kind of reverence and celebration and so on. And, you know, even even our food ways having 
changed so much that so that now you know what we what we imbibe is not dictated to us by what's actually um growing in our environment from from the landscape as we find it but it's dictated to us by market forces and industrial food manufacturers and so on um and in all these respects we we've just basically um severed a bond i i don't know if you think that i i completely agree that's a that's a um a good word um in in the thinking about kind of cultures and societies we quite often use this term social capital to describe the relationships between people the beneficial capital that's created the trust obligations reciprocity the institutions mm. that urge and in that we do talk about bonding social capital as well as bridging social capital which is just the the investments we put in each other in order to create something that gives us a long term benefit i think we can use the same term um in terms of our kind of bonding relationships with nature in the broader sense or the specific components whether plants or animals or pets or wild things or your garden or your farm or yeah. the mountain um and i think it's interesting then to speculate as to whether those have declined over time as countries have become affluent i think they probably have uh then to identify the kind of key uh places where we might seek to intervene and for me it's pretty clearly uh children in the middle ages of childhood the mm. first age of childhood is up to about the age of 5 when when we look inwards and seek security and don't really most of us don't form continuous memories up to the age of 5 we have snatches mm. we have like photographs but we don't have videos and then from the ages of about 5 or 6 to 11 is the middle age of childhood and that's when we start to remember continuous events so we remember a picnic under an oak tree on a sunny day we remember a visit to the beach we remember climbing a tree and falling out of it and for me uh, forming those memories uh, that relate to activities in nature during that period is completely critical because otherwise when we grow up we don't have those um uh, uh kind of stories that that uh, bond us to place and to ideas of nature which would then lead us to caring enough to change policy or change behavior or put pressure on political and social systems and institutions to change the way that those are configured so i think the the you know childhood is a critical component of all of that um as a starting point and then the second bit i'd say would be um and then comes um the key question of 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 how we live our lives where we are at the current point we find ourselves in what choices do we particularly have over consumption patterns uh, the problems that the world faces are not to do with numbers of people uh, they're to do with the impact the aggregate impact of consumption patterns and sadly for the planet um uh we find that larger numbers of people are converging on the kinds of consumption patterns in affluent countries and there's plenty of evidence to show that although we have over the years um and most affluent countries show this pattern uh become richer as measured by gdp so each person has 
three or four times as much GDP or stuff as mm. they did 50 years ago. But on average, in the UK, in Japan, in Europe, in North America, um, in other affluent countries, on average, uh, life satisfaction or happiness or contentment, however you might want to measure it, is pretty flat. We're not happier than we were in the 1950s, but we have lots more stuff. And so it's a, it's a little bit of a myth that we may well have, at the collective level, bought the idea that having lots more stuff makes you happy. Having some stuff is great. I mean, you want a house and you want food and you want security and you want water. So having more stuff when you are uh, short of it or don't have it or are poor is really important. But after a certain point, for most people, um, the well-being that we feel comes from doing different things. And of course, there's a long way around to saying, and for me, it's about uh, relationships with natural places with nature yeah. that some of which produces food and some of which produces birdsong and flowers and uh, sunshine um, and gives us a kind of way of pointers towards a way of living that can lead to greater well-being yeah exactly and i, I mean I, I i think i think the issue with why the stuff doesn't work you know why why all that consumption doesn't work is just just to um stick on that term bond or bondedness you know in the past these cultures everything you had would have involved some kind of ongoing reciprocal relationship with other species or bits of the land or other people um you just wouldn't get any stuff that didn't involve that kind of interplay that wove your life into the fabric of of um, other lives or or the land itself um and I, i'm i'm more and more convinced that it's that um, you know, responsive and reciprocal relationship to an, an actual specific landscape um, that that created that situation. And conversely, you know, the, the 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 fact that what we consume now just doesn't satisfy us is because it doesn't have that relational component. Yeah, I um, think that's. I think that's very. I, I go with that, and I think that's very wise as well. I think that that the the key word, as you say, is about kind of reciprocity. It's the reciprocal. Mm relationship and then the obligations that come from that and mm. if, if you talk to hunters um, uh, in in most cultures including people who um, uh, hunt in in industrialized countries as well as um, developing uh, that most will uh, not in every case actually I can think of exceptions but um, in most cases people will approach the landscape in a very humble way and will say, if you don't think of the animals in a particular kind of respectful, supportive way, then there's no way they're going to give themselves up to the hunt. You won't be successful. That's so, an extraordinary idea that the animal gives itself up to yeah, the hunt. Very common, very very common mm. view. And and if you if you're unsuccessful, it's not the animal's fault. It's your fault because you've approached it with either a kind of sense of arrogance that this would be successful or you'd get a large animal or you'd get several things rather than the one thing. Um, and that kind of relationship is, is kind of written into the way that you think about the landscape and you think about animals, plants, ecosystems in the broader sense. And that, I think, is a very different sort of relationship to one where we might seek to control landscapes to exert a, a kind of style of action upon them where where humans are the sole agents 
and uh, therefore have, you know, by definition, have control. So you can make good things happen and you can stop bad things happening. And of course, we can't. We can do certain things, but my goodness, most of it is out of our kind of, um, out of our control. Um, and so a lot of it, I, I think, absolutely is, is how we approach the landscape. And that, you know, that goes for how you think about your garden or your farm or um, uh, uh, non-managed landscapes that you care for. What, what, how do we feel about them? How do we think about them? Um, because then already we're beginning to, to, to talk about a kind of a bonded relationship rather than a separated one. I think that offers kind of really interesting opportunities, actually. Mm. Jules, I wanted to ask you, um, the, the work that you've done with indigenous communities um, in various parts of the world um, obviously gives you a real eye into you know the the nature and the quality of their relationship to land um and and also you're you're working very much in, in more of an agricultural paradigm um with the, the sustainable agriculture work that you're doing i just wonder what you feel or think about kind of stuff that a lot of people are saying you know that agriculture in itself was a mistake and that people like hugh Brody, who've who've made a great analysis between you know hunters and and um farmers holding forth a view that it is a fundamentally um dominating paradigm which although we're we're working with you know moving towards a more sustainable kind of agriculture to sort of minimize the negative impacts to make it more biodiverse um but nevertheless when you look at how soil has been depleted and areas have become deserts and and how hunter-gatherer cultures were wiped out by the gradual colonial expansion of farmers. Um, I just wonder what you think about, well, firstly, whether you accept that negative characterization, and secondly, whether you think we could edge our way back to a much wilder paradigm of food production. Basically, that people have managed landscapes to promote more, more plentiful uh, amounts of wild food. Well, I think that you've, you've raised some really interesting points there. I, I think I wouldn't accept that as a kind of arm um, principle because it depends on the kind of agriculture. The really clever thing that Hugh Brody noted in, in his book was that, of course, in hunter-gathering cultures, the people move around within a fixed landscape. Mm. Um, uh, within agricultural landscapes, pe the people don't move around but the agricultural frontier expands. Um, and that was super clever because that kind of said, well, actually, this, under, this, this kind of thought about the relationship that we build up with specific places um, over time, over generations, the care and understanding, the knowledge that comes with that is, is different between um, undergathering uh, communities and, um, and agricultural. However, I, what I would say is that there's been a particular pattern of agricultural development in recent history mm. and um, it would be an error for me to say that's the only pattern that that pertains and therefore that's the one that defines agriculture agriculture is a form of uh, a, a way of managing the landscape to produce food all hunter gathering communities also manage the landscape i mean there's anywhere that looks um, untouched and uh, kind of solely wild, as it were, yeah. is not. You know that. I know that. The, the the people are in there amending and changing the landscape. They change it by affecting 
the animals in there. If you take top predators out, you, as we know, when the, when wolves were reintroduced into uh, Yellowstone, for example, it changed the nature of the the willow trees and the marshes along the river because the wolves changed the deer, which changed the landscape. So mm-hmm. we, we're always intervening. Humans are intervening, as indeed every other kind of animal and plant is intervening and trying to succeed. And those interactions, what we see is an emergent property of those interactions. So for me, um, agriculture can be different um, and it can do different things. And um, one of the and, and there are many historical examples of highly productive, sustainable agricultural landscapes that are that I would say are not not destructive. Um, the recent models of, of um, uh, agricultural production um, have produced in most or many examples a very high to use a kind of economics language here, negative externalities. They have externalized the costs of production by impacting upon other systems, um, ecosystems and social systems. And I have a have a phrase that I use, which is that we pay three times for our food. You pay for it at the till, you pay for it a second time through our taxes and how they use to subsidize and support different forms of agriculture and you pay a third time to clean up the mess yeah Uh, and so food often looks cheap but it isn't cheap we kind of hide those costs so um uh, a a fault of many modern industrialized uh, agricultural systems is that they have high hidden costs and the thing that's been happening in, in with with um with great interest in recent years has been the expansion of of lots of different forms of sustainable agriculture. Um, I happen to use and many people like now the term sustainable intensification. Yeah, that's really interesting. Yeah, it's a term that I coined in 1997 in a paper for the first time. And it was a deliberate effort to kind of bash together different kind of um, paradigms, ways of thinking, because intensification was seen, often is still seen, as being a priori a bad thing, but it depends what you're intensifying. If you intensify your use of of, of um, predatory insects, if you intensify your use of biodiversity or of knowledge, then mm. you can have you can consider those as kind of inputs into agriculture, fundamentally different from fossil fuel derived inputs. So right. lots of good things are happening, and I think it's good to think of the choices that we can have about around those agricultural systems, and then of course the impacts. I've just dug out a quote which kind of says what you just said there in one of those wild food papers. You said there's a, a false dichotomy around the ideas of the agricultural and the wild. And 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 when you're saying there about intensification uh, in a sustainable way, where you could look at um, Aboriginal communities over long periods of time building up, you know, an intensive uh, crop of um, daisy yams on the banks of the river in southwestern Australia. Um, Absolutely. But, you know, but that was still, I suppose the point for me is that was still a wild ecosystem and supported all the biodiversity and so on. Uh, my concern is with, with um, you know, that the, the, there is, to me, I, I do have a negative characterization of, uh, in my mind, of, of agriculture per se, because I think it was a move away from um, a biodiverse landscape and it was a, it was a move towards 
um, domination and uh, rather than reciprocity. So it was like we need to guarantee um, our food because we're not no longer trusting that the landscape as it is can sustain us. And when I say the landscape as it is, obviously that's allowing for the fact that these were highly managed wild landscapes. But as soon as people started um, moving into this agricultural paradigm of, of, of planting seeds in a separate place uh, from, from where they would ordinarily grow and, and um, genetically modifying them through selective breeding to, to make them uh, other than they were in the wild, you're moving away from, from the, the, both the, the biodiversity of your immediate surroundings um, and the biodiversity of your diet, and you're not relying on, on a wild population, albeit a modified wild population through these kind of interventions that we're talking about, um, to sustain you. You're saying, no, I will have now a population of things which, which I've actually created this subspecies now, and I've plowed the ground, I've determined exactly what's going to happen on this piece. So it's a, it's a far more dominant paradigm. I personally think there's there's um, a problem with that, which is has just taken a long time to unfold. So I would say that the seed of the Neolithic has borne fruit in the, uh, the the Green Revolution in the in the 20th century. It was bound to happen sooner or later. Yeah. Well, I I, I, yeah, I respect that view, um, and I can see I can see where you're coming from. But what I would say is it depends um, on the kind of agricultural system you're talking about. Um, uh, and I think it would be a mistake to to simply kind of adopt a, a duality as that quote kind of pointed towards that just says on the one hand you have wild and biodiversity and on the other hand you have agriculture and the two are separate and when they come up against each other they rub in, in kind of unhelpful ways that mostly... Mm results in the biodiversity and the wild losing out. Now, I, I think of lots of examples where that has happened, but what, what I would point towards is, is a kind of slight optimism around this notion of um, uh, the spread of sustainable intensification, the spread of different ways of farming, high levels of biodiversity, they make use of lots of components of ecosystem services, and, and do this through, and this is a term that we've used, do this through redesign, where mm. you think fundamentally differently about the landscape. In fact, there's a very nice framework that was developed by Stuart Hill in the, in the 1980s in Australia, which we've used um, uh, recently called efficiency, substitution and redesign. And the efficiency is is kind of, you could say that's the sort of light green stuff. That's where you just, you know, use stuff in a more targeted way, but you've fundamentally still got the same system. Substitution might mean you start to bring in integrated pest management to replace pesticides, but it's still fundamentally the same system. The third stage is redesign. It's where you just sit down and say, how can we make one component benefit another component? And yeah. look at those interactions and at the same time maintain the high levels of natural capital that we want. Um, and, and of course, that's intervention. Um, of course, that's changing things. But could that mean we mm. have more bees and pollinators, more birds? Could that mean we have high quality soils? Um, could that mean that we have diverse landscapes? Yeah, well, I can point to lots of examples where that's beginning to happen. So, uh, they're, And they're not happening by accident. They're happening through direct agency, through people trying to do di things differently. So I'd, I'd, I'd accept your basic premise, but I would have a, have a large footnote to it, which would say, yeah, but there's some really interesting stuff happening now. 
Um, and it's been building up over 20 years, some of it rather quietly, some of it in rather kind of small numbers of farmers. But we're now at a stage where um, uh, there are a number of significant large scale activities. And by that, we, we published a paper in Nature Sustainability last year on this, where we looked at 47 projects or programs or initiatives where the impacts were at, at a scale greater than 10 to the four farmers or hectares, in other words, mm. above 10,000. Um, and the, you know, in other words, those are kind of not accidents, they're real deliberate efforts to change the fundamentals. And I think yeah. if you get to the fundamentals, then some interesting stuff can happen. Now, I'm not guaranteeing where we get to. Um, uh, it could all go badly wrong. It could remain uh, troubling and difficult. Um, uh, I, that's at the agricultural end, as we hinted at earlier in the conversation. If there were another set of conversations around changing our consumption patterns, so that mm. the, the draw on the agricultural systems that largely feed the world was different, the, the kind of market signals largely, then we would be producing different things in different amounts uh, that could also have a positive benefit. There's another argument about not wasting so much. So there are there are a number of stages in that kind of that um, uh, that that chain from from land to plate that where we know we could make some really big changes. Um, but I would also be kind of quietly optimistic that there's a lot of good things happening and landscapes that have many components that one would call both wild and farmed or deliberate or gardened or that sort of language um, around yeah. choices of the things within it. Yeah, I mean, just just to be slightly with uh, a dog with a bone um, about this distinction, um, though, um, between the, uh, the, the agricultural management of land and um, what our hunter-gatherer ancestors would do, because I think we both agree that they, there's very much intervention going on. It's So I, I'm just trying to get to at what point did the character of that intervention um, qualitatively change? You know, I mean, it's, it's fairly non-controversial that there is something called the Neolithic and that that, that period was the onset of um, something um, quite different in, in the relationship there. Um, and I guess I'm trying to um, work with the way I see the heart of that former situation um, as being one of trust and the other as being one of control. So to me, this idea of, of people rebonding with landscapes is that we once again begin to feel, well, actually, we could lean back and trust that this enormously you know productive and diverse uh, and complex thing um, called a landscape does have the means to sustain us rather than thinking that we need to sort of give it a half Nelson and say you know you better give me something to eat which I personally feel that the, the agricultural thing that's what we're talking about it's like it has to be our, our, our um, being the, the driving force as it were now I, I love in what you've said about the uh, the redesign thing because it seems to me that that's where the two can meet because that that design in paying attention to insights that perhaps we have and our ancestors didn't in terms of the the, the way that that complexity works within the ecosystems that we could see how we could we could actually tap into those um, relationships 
um, that, that, that give rise to productivity within an ecosystem. Um, and that redesign thing could be moving us back to the wild, but that's, that, that, that's I guess, what I'm, um, I'm hoping for. So, I mean, I, I, I'm looking at all the sort of agroforestry movements and the, and the kind of things that, that you're talking about there with great hope too. But, but 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 I I would I would hope that they bring us back into a place where, you know, we're surrounded by wild stuff that that we've had a role in. You know, to me it's like, let's rediscover um, an ecological niche, you know, which we currently don't have. What what yeah. we have is us as a pathological presence that is scuppering everything. But yeah. is there a way that yeah, we can get back in? Yeah, I wouldn't put it quite so, <laughs> quite quite so um, starkly as that. Um, what, what climate I think, change is, is pretty much scuppering everything. I mean, yeah. Well, I think what I, I what I, where I'd be coming from would be trying to use a sort of a both and language rather yeah. than an either or language. So, so a notion of of, and I can see where you're coming from when when you say we we need to go go back to the wild. I, I certainly would love a much wilder landscape, a more diverse one, a more mosaic style landscape with more components. We know that's good for uh, the things that we see as wild, the birds and animals and insects oh. and plants and everything that goes with it. Um, uh, but I try to create a kind of language which talks about going forward. So we have what we've got. How could we change that and make that better? So rather than saying we want to go back to something, um, how about it's going? The, it's the forward? nature of the relationship, Jules. I'm saying we go back to. I don't. I don't yeah. think we need to go back to the Stone Age. I, th I think we need to go forward to something. Yeah. But it's like one, a, a situation in which we trust rather than control, yeah. and, and and we're part of rather than being, you know, sitting yeah. on top of. You know. Yes. Yeah. And I mean, and and, and it <laughs> and it certainly is urgent. Um, the you know the the uh, the amount of time people spend in nature and affluent countries has on average declined the amount of time that children spend outdoors um, in those middle ages of childhood has declined uh, the kinds of food that we're eating have changed um, the landscapes at the aggregate level are fundamentally different and there are many important ones that are still under threat and still being damaged without the appropriate protections um, so uh, the, at the planet at the planetary level we've you know, we've had just had in this country, haven't we, the hottest eight or nine days in February on yes. 20 degrees, yeah. which has brought on a, a quite extraordinary spring with all the trees in leaf, not all of them, but most of them in leaf already. And it's only March. Um, uh, I don't think I've ever seen anything like that um, in our landscape here um, ever. Um, and so that and which is wonderful. We love spring. We'd like to see it come on. Um, but actually, the the fundamentals, the underlying things, are worrying. So there's no yeah, question that these are these are critical and important questions to ask. Um, uh, for me, I'm trying to kind of bring along um, a range of views and and seeking a, a a kind of seeking a comprehensive language, but also examples that you can point to. So this is not just kind of you know myth making and hope um, and um, uh, and crossing your fingers and 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 so forth. It actually says, look, there are examples where we can do some of these things, uh, where you can redesign and change landscapes, where you can redesign uh, ways of living. Back to my original point, what constitutes uh, the good life? What yeah. is it we want to do? Um, and what is it we should be doing? If you look at the um, 
the aging communities in Japan. Japan has the largest number of centenarians. Yeah. Um, uh, and not only do uh, people in Nagano, for example, or Okinawa live long, they also live well. And they do five things in common. Um, they undertake daily physical activity. Uh, they are outdoors every day. They're socially connected with each other, um, both men and women. Um, uh, uh, they um, uh, engage in daily cognitive challenge to keep the kind of brain active. Mm. And they make sure they in eat interesting, diverse, different foods. Because when you get old, your taste buds tend to get shot. Um, and so actually you want something interesting to look forward to several times a day. So those five things result in a good life uh, and a long, well-lived life. And you could say there's, that's, that's some kind of propositions there about the important things to us all. Um, most of those involve relatively low levels of material consumption, being with friends, engaging in cognitive activity, maybe chatting, learning a language, doing a crossword, reading a book, um, being outdoors. OK, that counts. Uh, physical activity outside. OK, go for a walk, sit in the garden. Uh, that's low consumption. Um, and then eating the food. And that comes back to the core of our discussion. Those choices about the kind of food um, uh, affect our landscapes, of course. And maybe there's a little kind of manifesto thought there about about what we could be doing at the aggregate level for all of us learning from that example of of, of longevity in in japanese communities just picking up on something you said earlier we, we we've been sitting here thinking what what could we do Where, where's where's the most leverage to to try and facilitate this kind of reconnection that that so uh so much needs to happen and so we've 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 recently launched a community interest company with with a with a view to having a vehicle to uh, to do education in schools around foraging, because um, you know I mean there's so much going on at the moment in terms of um, people looking at connection with nature, and I know you're you're right in the heart of that um, research to, to to show how important and beneficial that is. Um, I just personally don't think it goes far enough because in the end for a lot of people what they're doing is connecting with nature um, imaginatively which I think is great but to me when you look at these um, traditional societies they they were very very practically connected with with the landscape because they depended on the land for resources so they had to had to work in in that way um, for their food, their fiber, their medicine, everything. So uh, yeah. I, I'm I'm really excited about the idea of children beginning to conceive of of a landscape as a thing that gives them food, and yeah. that they, they 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 develop memories not just of seeing and hearing things, but but of tasting and smelling and eating and preparing meals. And uh, yeah. you know, yeah. um, I agree. Mm. And you know, I've just picked up off my shelf that's sitting in front of me here uh, is Isabella Tree's book called Wilding. Um, okay. Yeah. You and many listeners will yeah, know yeah. well from their farm at Nep in West Sussex, and mm. and that that showed um, that, that shows the outcome of a kind of bold experiment that you can you can do something very different in the landscape and still call it farming, but the outcomes can be really substantially different. Um, uh, and um, if you can do as you've just described, link that up into 
uh, people's understanding of those landscapes and um, their choices and um, a theme constant in all of this is is children again um, yeah. so that they can see uh, what's possible perhaps may be inspired um, uh, perhaps would study more of this or at least kind of think about what's important in the world in a different way and then you know what that's a pretty good start actually um, would you I think we'd be thinking we're we're moving on the in the right direction when that sort of thing is happening I, I think we'd be putting roots back in the ground I think we would uh, we would indeed it's been great to have you Jules people can check you out on your website right and um, I'm sure people are going to be wanting to read some of your wonderful books so Thank you. Um, that's very kind yeah there's a there's a whole range there um, as you pointed out earlier on and and the real pleasure to talk and and good work um, on keeping up the 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 importance of of food and wild food and thinking about our our relationships and our bonds as you were saying with um, the landscape um really really supportive thank you jules thanks a lot So thank you for joining us for this week's World Wild Podcast. You will, of course, have noticed at the beginning the introduction was much longer than usual. Um, that was largely determined by Jules pretty being a bit pressed for time this week, so he could only give us about half an hour for the interview. Um, but it did give me a chance to catch up with sharing some thoughts about um, where I see the uh, reconnection of people with land going in future uh, as regards to the role of wild foods and also to just fill in some some uh, thoughts about the aims of the podcast um, as ever we'd encourage you to rate us and leave us a good review if you like us and also to visit our patreon page and consider supporting us for a few dollars pounds or whatever your local currency is because um, that will enable us to produce more and better content so that's it for this week's worldwide podcast